Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, but should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Before we dive into our interview, I want to take a minute to thank those of you who support our podcast by either liking, sharing, subscribing, or leaving us a positive review. It means a lot to us that you're finding our podcast valuable. And by sharing or leaving a review, it means more people find us and have access to the information we share. So we thank you. And also a big thank you to anyone who financially supports our work on Patreon or who has helped us with a one-time donation. We're very grateful for your support. And you can find ways to support us and listen to all of our episodes on CannabisHealthRadio.com. And now to today's episode. We first interviewed our guest today in March of 2017, which seems like a lifetime ago, given all that's happened in the world in the last few years. And as a bit of background, she was on 26 pharmaceutical medications for pain and other health issues and was looking for a solution that would get her off drugs. She found cannabis and that changed her life. She's the founder of Ant Zeldas, which specializes in the development of cannabis extract protocols for seriously ill patients. And you will recognize her from the documentary, Weed the People, which received excellent reviews. And joining us from Mexico is Mara Gordon. Mara, it's good to talk to you. It's hard to believe that it was almost seven years ago we chatted. I know. It's unbelievable how much time has gone by. I think the pandemic, basically, we went from 2017, 2018, 2019, 2023. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> That's right. Now, for those listeners who may not have heard our podcast way back in 2017, shame on them. But could you relate your story of why you were on 26 Pharmaceuticals and how cannabis changed your life? I can. I, there is one thing that I you know, slightly want to clarify on that, and that is, as is typical for many women, I didn't seek out cannabis to help me, even though I should have. I sought it out to help my husband. He is a sober alcoholic and had broken his back and needed back surgery and refused to have the back surgery because he refused to go on opioids for the rest of his life because it obviously triggers the phenomenon of craving, etc. So we started searching out an alternative and we heard that cannabis was a possibility without triggering the addiction. So we started experimenting and found it to be just absolutely amazing and an opportunity. And he ended up having the back surgery. And with the orthopedic surgeon's consent, I brought him some of Aunt Zelda's medicine to the recovery room. That's how much, I mean, he was on opioids for only a few weeks in a very small amount because we were able to do it with cannabis. The reason I was on all the pharmaceuticals is I had previously been an athlete and had a bad injury and had back surgery myself, something that should have been very minor. But instead, uh, I developed uh, hospital-acquired uh, a bacterial spinal meningitis. 
uh, which is a very deadly disease. I mean, the 2% survival. And I was very fortunate to recover from it and live, but I didn't get through it unscathed. So I had all sorts of organ problems, kidney, heart, lungs, and chronic pain, to say the least, and other limitations that came from it. And each time that I would go to the doctor, they would just add more, you know, this isn't working. Oh, well, let's add this instead of subtracting and changing. And so when I saw what cannabis could do, it was kind of a no-brainer. I'd already titrated off of like the fentanyl patch and things like that. And so, but I still was on a tremendous number. And, you know, I can happily say I'm on three now other than cannabis. So I'm not anti-pharmaceuticals. I'm just anti the way that they are presently being prescribed. Mara, I want to ask you, when do you think conventional medicine will ever recognize the amazing medical benefits of cannabis? Well, I mean, where we are now in 2023 compared to where we were even when I was on your show last time in 2017, Mm -hmm. there's been tremendous awareness that's been raised. And I really believe that the pandemic was a huge leap forward in helping doctors to be more accepting and open to learning about plant medicines. During the pandemic, people exercised their right to have control over their own bodies in many ways, sometimes trying out some pretty nutty you know, <laughs> options. But in many cases, they were using things that, you know, mushrooms and, and I'm not even talking about psilocybin. I'm just talking about mushrooms in general and using all sorts of other non-pharmaceuticals to treat various diseases and started informing their doctors and going to conferences and becoming involved and being citizen scientists so that doctors were more like, you know, I have to get on board or I'm not going to understand what my patient is doing. And that's interestingly a lot what we're seeing. You know, I lecture um, almost exclusively at medical schools and for medical programs. And um, I'm just amazed at, uh, I mean, there used to be, you know, 30 doctors and then there was 100 and now there's thousands of doctors that show up at, at some of these things. So I think that we are seeing a lot of progress. Do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. Uh, But we're at least on the right direction at this point. So Mara, what would you say are some of the main changes that kind of stick out in your mind that have occurred, say, in the last seven years as far as cannabinoid therapies, et cetera? What are some of the big things that stand out for you? You know, Corey, that's a really good question. I think one of the biggest things that stands out for me is the deterioration of the quality of products. It has gone down in a direct proportion to legalization being wider spread. It used to be you had people who, I don't want to say had a relationship with the plant because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist. I'm an engineer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a foo-foo-y sort of person. I'm pretty, I'm pretty left brain on many things. But the type of medicines that were being made and the way that the medicine was being processed was all about quality of medicine to treat various diseases and to help people. And when it started becoming about SKUs and ROIs and things like that, I think that we saw a direct correlation in the deterioration of the quality of the medicine. I also think that we've seen some fantastic advances, not always used correctly. 
for example, the nano encapsulation for rapid onset of products, it has its place. It doesn't have its place in the way that it's necessarily being, you know, marketed, but it does have it have it used. For example, if somebody's in severe pain and they want to use a, you know, a sublingual medicine that may take, you know, two hours to take effect for them, they can use something that's nano encapsulated. They can get, you know, five minutes, they can have relief. And then as it's wearing off is about the time because it's very short lasting. And about that time is when the longer term medicine is going to kick in. So there are innovations like that. Do I think they're all good? Absolutely not. Do I despise what's happening with these products being made with isolates? I just can't stand them. You know, that we used to use isolate to top off for leveling out on dosing. If something was you know, 47 milligrams per milliliter and you wanted it to be 50, you might use enough to top it off, but you would never make the basis of the product an isolate. So Mara, for, for the individual listening who may not know what an isolate is, could you explain that please? Yeah, an isolate can either be and something that's, uh, it actually is like if, if you take a cannabis plant and you process it into a, where you isolate a single cannabinoid or a single, you know, anything else, terpene or whatever, it's when you isolate it. Sometimes these are synthetics that are made in labs. Sometimes they're actually isolated from the plant itself, but they're, in, they're a powder. They're literally just left is the, the, uh, the chemical itself. Um, and these are what's being mass produced many places and then mixed with some sort of carriers for producing into a product. Mara, when you speak to doctors, what is their biggest misunderstanding about cannabis? I think the biggest misunderstanding is the fact that it cannot be consistently dosed. I mean, we've been proving that wrong for, you know, 13, 14 years now that it can be. Doctors will say, well, you know, I have patients that are using it, but I don't know what they're taking and I don't know how they're using it. And, you know, and how do we make it to where every time they can have the same experience? And I, I think that that is part of the reason they're so frightened by cannabis as a potential medicine is that they think it's going to be so unpredictable. And there are ways to make it far more predictable. You know, you earlier talked about the quality of the product. And I think Corey and I did an interview with a company in California that assesses the labels on CBD products and found that I think Corey was close to 90 percent 90, yeah. of what they said was in the vial uh, did not contain that amount. Did not contain what it said it contained. Yeah, exactly. And I think that speaks to what you talked about. The quality of the product has diminished because people are looking at the quick buck. Do you agree? I do agree. I do think that there's a little bit of a side story along that. And I think that we would be remiss in not mentioning the Farm Bill 2018 because that was put forward by all the hemp hustlers that wanted to include CBD in that bill. Hemp being legalized in the United States for the ability to be grown in various areas is fantastic for, you know, industry. And when I say industry, I'm not talking cannabis. I'm talking industrial uses. I'm talking manufacturing, fuels, uh, foods, all sorts of things. What they did was they put CBD in it and somehow demonized THC as if it's 
you know, just to get high and CBD is the actual medicine. But then when CBD was being manufactured through the farm bill, they had to have very, very different levels of regulatory oversight. I always insisted even after 2018 that any CBD products that were purchased were purchased as a cannabis product and not as a hemp CBD product so that they were manufactured under the same guidelines and the same regulatory uh, structure as any other cannabinoid should be. And I think what ended up happening is you had these people who jumped on this hemp hustler bandwagon and started making all these products. And then all of a sudden they're stuck with it. We had this flood and then the price tanked. And I mean, I remember when we used to pay uh, $3,000 US a pound for ACDC back in the day. And then it was down to like $50 a pound. People weren't making money on any of this anymore. And as a result, they started reprocessing it into Delta-8 and Delta-10 and now uh, THCP and all these other cannabinoids that are just a way for them to move the product that's sitting on their shelves. I'm very much not a proponent and very vocal about, obviously, about the fact that I feel like CBD needs to be moved back into the plant and not in the, on the hemp side of things. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. One of the things that I really frustrates me in talking to people about uh, the medical benefits of cannabis is um, the term stoner. And I think the general public, probably the majority of the public, feel that cannabis is strictly there to get stoned. There's no medical benefit to it. It's very much like being in the grape growing industry, the wine industry, uh, you want to be termed a wino. Well, you don't. You appreciate it. And I think that term, stoner, has really, it's a derogatory term in terms of those people who want to use cannabis. How do you feel about that? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell on myself a little bit here because I was one of those people that used those words. You know, I, I, first of all, I had never heard the word of the word cannabis before. I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I just knew marijuana and weed and dope and all these other uh, pejorative terms. You know, I yeah. grew up in Texas and, you know, I was a teenager in the, in the early uh, mid seventies and we smoked, you know, Mexican ditch weed. I had never seen a cannabis flower I'd only seen the shake at the bottom of a, of a baggie with stems in it and seeds. You know, of course, now those seeds go for $10, $50 a piece. And I think about how many seeds we threw away back in those days in our little uh, credit card with a uh, shoebox lid, you know, cleaning out the flour. But um, I really did believe that it was, you know, people who smoked. I mean, the only people I knew as an adult, uh, and I mean adult meaning like in my 40s, 50s, uh, or I guess early 50s, I was doing cannabis already by my 50s, were people who also did other drugs. And so I really did feel like that was what it was. And it was only after I started working with cannabis that all of a sudden people that I knew, I was shocked at how many people I knew that recreated with cannabis or that were growing cannabis. And it really was, I think it's like anything else. You know, we fear what we don't know. And so it's really important that people are more vocal 
about what they're doing and who they are, because now I'm the biggest defender of that, you know, of people not using terms like that. Yes, there are still people who sit around and do that, but if it wasn't cannabis, it would be something else because that's just their nature. It's not the cannabis that makes them lazy. That's just who they are. And I like to think, I mean, I've started a publicly traded company. We do clinical and preclinical research. I've got Aunt Zelda's. I've got the movie. I've got my software platform. I deal with patients every day. I teach doctors. In fact, I'm teaching this afternoon. And yet I'm on THC all day, every day. So am I lazy? Would you call me a stoner? I don't think so. So I think that people need to meet more people and have more conversations with people that they run into on a daily basis that don't fit the stereotype in order to defeat that term. Mm -hmm. What about the endocannabinoid system? Do doctors, are they aware of that? Well, some are and some aren't. Some believe it's there and some don't. The vast majority are starting to understand that it actually does exist, but they don't know what to do with it. You know, I had a discussion mm -hmm. with a pharmacist yesterday about the fact that, you know, we talk about the, the trifecta of conditions that cannabis is so good for, and that's, you know, pain, anxiety, and sleep. And those happen to be the three categories of pharmaceuticals that they do not do well. In fact, they do very poorly. Part of it's because of the way that they target certain you know, receptors like serotonin receptors, et cetera, in the brain, but the brain doesn't work that way. The brain has to have balance. And the endocannabinoid system is in fact what creates the balance within the body. So I do think that more and more they're starting to see that. Um, and if they're not, then they're dinosaurs. Yeah, we've interviewed uh, a lot of cannabis uh, patients who have not told their doctor, but when they do tell their doctor what they're doing by using cannabis, mm -hmm. their doctor usually, I, I don't want to say all the time, Corey, but they say, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. yeah. And other doctors will, like a woman we interviewed a number of years ago, she refused conventional treatment for her breast cancer and told the doctor that she was going to use cannabis. And he said, you've got a death wish. And she's still alive today. And she's thriving both spiritually, physically, and she's in excellent shape. So I think really the key is what you're doing. And hopefully what our podcasts help to do is try and educate the public in terms of the value of cannabis without trying to sell it. Your thoughts. Every time I put together a treatment plan for a patient, one of the, which, you know, I do for every patient. And one of the things that I do is I include a, a sheet of helpful links, helpful information. And part of that information, of course, is, you know, the diet, the, you know, explaining to them about why they need to stay away from sugars, all these sorts of things, exercise, meditation. But then there's a whole section in there that are uh, targeted to their diagnosis with whatever the latest research is about it, not for them, but for them to share with their doctors. So I empower them to have that conversation with their doctor so that they're not just walking in there and saying, yeah, I'm using it. And, you know, I talked to this lady on the internet, you know, on, on Zoom, and she told me to do this. And it's like, there's science. Fortunately, I have some credibility that, that helps patients that are working with me. In fact, many doctors send their patients to me. 
But I feel like doctors are having to depend upon their patients and people like me and, and Corey, I guess, I don't know what exactly whether you're doing one-on-one uh, or not, but they have to depend on us because we know more about it than them. What I educate doctors is, is that my goal is to put myself out of business. I want them to be doing this. I'm, you know, I'm almost 65 years old. I don't need to be doing this much, you know, very much longer. I'm tired and living in Mexico. And yet I'm still having to do it because these patients don't have any other alternatives. Doctors need to be informed when the people live in a legal uh, estate or country or environment. If they don't, then the patient's as big a part of the problem. You know, people that go in on to, for example, to be part of a clinical trial and they're using cannabinoids and then the clinical trial results are skewed. Is that ethical? You know, I mean, we have a lot of questions as, a, as, a, as healthcare providers to consider because they would be ineligible for the trial if they did tell their doctors they're using it. So it's a real quandary. And unfortunately, ethical questions don't always have simple answers. Mara, you work with or have worked with a lot of children. Mm-hmm. For every 30 calls I get from a parent, 29 of those are going to be a brain tumor. We've certainly interviewed many, many adults, and we've interviewed some parents of children, but not that many. I wonder if we could focus a little bit on the optimal way to treat children and talk a little bit about dosing, et cetera, because there's a lot of misinformation on these Facebook pages, et cetera. How would you proceed if you had a patient come to you? What's an average dose that you would, is there an average dose that you would give, say, a child with a brain tumor? What would you consider to be the high-end dose for a child, et cetera. One of the things that, you know, I'm a a process engineer and I've been collecting data around cannabinoid use with patients for all these years and have developed a software platform that's being used by doctors um, and, of course, us internally. And one of the things that we have shown is that there is zero correlation in the data of a dose being uh, equivalent to how pharmaceuticals are dosed. There is no milligram per kilogram correlation in the data. However, we do see a correlation between the age of the patient and the dose. You might have two people, one of them is seven years old and one of 70 years old, and they both have the same diagnosis. And the dosing required for the two of them will be vastly different. The younger the patient, the higher the dose. This is because of quite a few different points having to do with metabolism, activity in cannabinoid receptors, etc. But also, I think it has a strong correlation between the ability of children to accept feeling altered compared to older people. They have more of an acceptance of it, and it's nothing, what's the big deal? I'm not, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to feel this way, versus older people who want to be more in control, uh, have a tendency. And of course, that's a generalization that's not always the case. Um, with children, what I do is I start them out, oh, I do the same thing with everybody, and I start them out on a target dose. That doesn't mean that that's going to end up being their final dose. But that's their initial target. And I do that based upon, I set that up based upon what the data shows on that or similar diagnoses for other patients in a certain age range that they have. 
And this is going to be a, a combination of cannabinoids at different uh, amounts. And I don't give them together. Yes, it's whole plants, so there's going to be small amounts within the medicines themselves. But I give very... Um, very specific instructions. When you're dealing with a small child, it's going to depend on whether they're um, they're be able, able to take anything by mouth, whether they're you know how they're being fed, and what stage of the disease they're at. Oftentimes, these parents are also giving their children a slew of other supplements, so that they're already kind of overloading the kids with a lot, a lot of stuff. Let's say I have a child with a brain tumor who comes to me that's, you know, that's two years old. I might have them on a total of, you know, 500 milligrams of total cannabinoids. And based upon what type of tumor it is and what other comorbidities, et cetera, they are, will be to determine whether it's a, you know, 300 of that is THC and 100 of that and 50 of that CBD and maybe, you know, 50 of it's CBG, you know, that kind of thing. So it's putting together the actual treatment plan for that based upon the specific. No, ch- no two children are alike, so no two treatment plans are going to be exactly. What's important is, though, is to start them out extremely low on a dose. Uh, I'm, I usually start a child at something like 2.5 Uh, either 1.25 to 2.5 milligrams of THC. Because really, you know, 5 to 10 milligrams of CBD. I also don't give them together. I always give the CBD at least two hours after the THC. Uh, One's an agonist and one's an antagonist. And I want to give the THC a chance to get in there and activate those receptors. And then I'll, I'll do the THC ordinarily in three doses through the day with the majority of the medicine given at bedtime. And the two CBD is kind of rocking chair in the middle with one of the THCs after six to eight hours after the CBD. And then the CBG at bedtime, unless the child is activated by it. CBG is usually very calming, but you know, anything that's involving the endocannabinoid system, it could be exactly the opposite. It could make them feel uh, activated. So I have to always make sure that I'm uh, conscious of that. So it's a matter of starting them very low and slowly increasing. Um, And when they get to an optimum dose is when you're no longer able to titrate up without having adverse uh, effects on the child. And also I look from scan to scan. Most patients are on a, a two to three month scan uh, schedule and we're able to like, you know, you're not going to take cannabis. You're not going to stand next to somebody like that crazy letter at the beginning and, and get cured. You're not going to use a suppository on a brain tumor and get rid of the, the brain tumor. I mean, you have to be realistic on the time that's going to take and, um, uh, the method of ingestion and how you titrate up. I mean, it might take them. Uh, I have a woman right now who I think I talked to you about the other day. You know, she, I have the child to, on a titration schedule to get up to about 500 milligrams of total cannabinoids. And somebody told her she needed to be on 1500 a THC and 1500 a CBD. Well, the mother can't get her past two milligrams without freaking out. So now all you've done is shame this mother to think that she's failing her child and her child's going to die because you couldn't give her enough medicine. And that's disgusting to me. That is absolutely disgusting. These mothers and fathers and siblings have enough on their plate with the the horror of a brain tumor in a small child without being shamed 
for not doing something that they saw on a Facebook group. Yeah, I think you bring up an important point here, Mara. So there are we, you and I and Ian are all aware that there are many, many cannabis cancer Facebook pages. Many of those pages are just a thin veil for scamming or selling people. And they are giving out information on those pages that is killing people. I have to stay out of those pages. It makes me crazy. But please be aware when you're going into these Facebook pages, question, where are these people getting their information? What are their uh, credentials? Where did all this information come from? Be very, very careful, please. Yeah, I got off of Facebook because my blood pressure was being impacted, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because because I, I couldn't understand how people could be such bullies, you know. I mean, you're, they were in shaming. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. when We the People came out, of course, there was this, you know, flood of attention around pediatric cancer at that time. And I'm kind of, you know, somebody to point at in the field, obviously, having treated thousands of children at this point. But I couldn't believe some of the Facebook posts that patients of my families were being bullied and not doing or doing or not using this person's product or not doing that. And it's just like, it's just mean and it should not be allowed. You know, some of the things that are not allowed on Facebook are ridiculous, but to allow this kind of thing, it's just it's just wrong in every stretch of the imagination. I really believe that there should be a stronger oversight of what kind of content. And I'm not talking about censorship. I'm just talking about bad business practices and fraud. These are fraudulent Facebook pages. They are they are telling people that they're there to help while they're trying to scam you and sell you something. Absolutely. Mara, I want to talk about uh, an aspect of being healthy that um, I think many people don't realize. They may understand the medical benefits of cannabis, but one of the things they don't do is they don't change their diet. And we've interviewed a number of people who have treated some very serious illnesses and ailments and life-threatening diseases with cannabis. But invariably, those people who are most successful are the ones that change their diet. Talk about diet. I could not agree with you more, Ian. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me is that people think that the condition that they were in, the the prior to having cancer, they don't have to change anything. Uh, If you keep doing the same thing, you're going to have the same results. And, uh, you know, the same way that uh, cancer is a systemic disease and there's no such thing as a cure because it's not something you get externally and then get rid of. It's something that your body, all of our bodies create uh, malignant cells every day, but we also kill them internally. They're, they're not problematic. It's when they're out of control. That's something within your system itself. Then, of course, you do things like have huge, you know, hopped up sugars and you're feeding the cancers. So what I talk to people about is changing their diet significantly. Personally, I have been a pescatarian for 52 years, uh, almost 53 years. So um, I can tell you that it doesn't, uh, you can, it's a nice way to live. You can live and have a healthy lifestyle that way. 
I talk to people primarily about following a Mediterranean diet with, uh, the, in the United States, I would never tell somebody to eat chicken because it's so disgusting and filthy in the United States. I really prefer that people just stick to fish. Get rid of the sugars for sure. The Warburg effect proved out in the 30s that cancer cells thrive on glucose. Everything metabolizes into sugars in our body. But the way that it does, the amount that it does, based upon, you know, uh, whether you eat a, a chocolate bar, you know, or whether you eat a baked potato are very, very different in the way that they're metabolized. So I, I want to make sure that people are on a good, healthy diet. I also talk to them um, about intermittent fasting. Um, uh, certainly on days when they're having chemotherapy, there's serious evidence to show that if you fast and do water fast on the day prior to chemotherapy, the chemotherapy is, is more effective. Um, I have uh, people on a, depending on their age and depending on their lifestyle and what type of cancers, but ordinarily somewhere around a 17-7 or an 18-6 schedule of eating. It helps with regulating your body so that you don't have the cravings, and it also allows your body to do what it does naturally. You know, we in modern, in modern times uh, have access to far too much food. Uh, and I'm obviously talking about in Western, you know, wealthier countries. I'm not talking, you know, sub-Saharan Africa necessarily. Uh, but our bodies are designed to be starving uh, and eat in small, like, access food, eat it once and then not eat again. I mean, that is the way that we're built. And that is the way that we do better. Uh, personally, I, uh, I, I do 17-7 and I've been doing it for several years now. And it, uh, and what I mean by 17-7 is 17 hours I do not eat, and then within a seven-hour time frame I do eat. So, um, and, and with cancer patients, it's very important to do something like that. It's also the supplements that you're taking. Is it, you know, I, I have a lot of people on mushrooms. Um, I'm very careful with... Uh, uh, antioxidants, because we don't know yet, we don't know, have enough information about which antioxidants are, if they're blocking a particular treatment. Chemotherapy drugs are designed through, to work through a lot, uh, many times through oxidation. So we don't want to go through the horrors of chemo and then block their ultimate effectiveness by introducing things that are blocking. So the same way that uh, oral vitamin C versus infused vitamin C, unless it's a liposomal. But I think that it's very important that people uh, uh, watch what they eat as far as making really healthy choices. The food is certainly beautiful. You know, fresh fruit, uh, fruit and vegetables is beautiful. It's tastier. Um, there's a, a zillion recipes. And one of the things I do is I provide my patients um, not only, uh, you know, a copy of how this is the Mediterranean, this is how it works, but also an inverted um, looking at the food pyramid to show how much of each category of foods you should be eating. And then I provide them a grocery list and a 14-day menu. So, you, you know, to tell somebody to do something and then not to empower them on how to do it um, is just basically going to leave them feeling frustrated.
You know, the 17-7 is quite easy to do after a, a couple of days, mm-hmm. isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's- the interesting thing is that people like to say that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but breakfast traditionally wasn't eaten by human beings until the 1920s when Kellogg came up with a way to uh, uh, have people eat their cereals. And that's when uh, Bernays got involved with his uh, propaganda saying breakfast was the most important meal of the day. I mean, the 17-7, you can do any time. You mean you, you can eat breakfast and lunch, but then have nothing until the next day. So it varies. And it's up to each individual what is most comfortable for them. Right. You know, I picked the the particular schedule I'm on. I eat between 1 p.m. and 8 p.m., And that way we still have a normal dinner time. We still, you know, I can have a a late lunch and it's, and it doesn't feel like I'm depriving myself in any way. Um, And I mean, I've been, like I say, I've been doing it for years and um, you know, it really has been a, a game changer for not having those spikes uh, uh, in my blood sugar that, uh, you know, I don't have diabetes or anything like that, but I just, everybody I think gets where they have like that three or four o'clock in the afternoon where all of a sudden you're like your energy tanks. I don't, you know, and you have to like have a pick me up. I think Snickers even had a whole ad campaign around that at one point. Um, and, but I mean, I just don't, I don't have any of that. And uh, anyone that follows this can, I think, could would could benefit regardless if they're healthy or sick. It doesn't. You don't need to be sick to follow this. Mara, you're uh, you're a breath of fresh air in the cannabis industry, and uh, we want to thank you very much for doing this. We greatly appreciate it, and we've got to do this more often. Seven years is too long. I agree. I agree completely. And uh, even though you said you're in your 60s and you want to put yourself out of business, you've got a long way to go, sister. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, yes, yeah, absolutely. Dear. I mean, I plan on, I plan on, you know, if, if, what does retirement mean? But I mean that the day to day management, I've, you know, I've only been doing this because there was no other choice. There was no other option, you know. I, you know, I always say, how do you say no to a bald baby? You know, what am I supposed to do? You know, and it's like, I don't yeah. have a God complex or I don't have a, you know, oh, it's only me. But I look around and there just aren't a lot of options for these people. So I'm trying to train the options so that I can step back and work on my data and do data and analytics and create formulations around different diseases, which is probably the highest and best use of my time at the end of the day. Fantastic. Mara, it was great to talk to you. We very much appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, I want to let our listeners know that you can help us spread the word about the amazing, often life-saving health benefits of cannabis just by sharing the podcast, writing a review, or rating us. We very much appreciate uh, the help of everyone who's done that already, and we really like the five-star ratings. We'd also like to thank those of you who support the show by making a one-time donation or a monthly donation on our Patreon page, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. It helps to keep us running. You'll find out how to do that on our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Thank you for your support. It means so much to us. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.